Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm proud to welcome one of Canada's heroes, a man who pushed himself over 40,000 kilometers around the world to raise funds for spinal cord research and support accessibility. Rick Hansen hardly needs an introduction. He is an officer of the Order of Canada, a six-time Paralympic medalist, and the man behind the Man in Motion World Tour. In 1985, he left Vancouver, B.C. in a wheelchair. The goal was to push himself around the world, and in the next two years, he went through 34 countries and ended up raising $26 million for the cause. Now, that might have been enough for some people, but he is still a busy guy today. These days, you'll find him involved in the Rick Hansen Foundation and the Rick Hansen Institute. The foundation works towards changing attitudes and accessibility, and the institute keeps working on a cure for spinal cord injury. He's a guy who has done a lot in his life, and it was a pleasure to spend some time with him. Here's his story. Before we get into where you are today and and who you've become today and the work you do today, it would help to get a sense of where you came from, what you were like as a a 14, 15-year-old before you had the accident that has cascaded into changing your life in the way that it has. You know, as a youngster, I was, uh, you know, born and raised in British Columbia, actually Port Alberni, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island. And then my father worked for BC Telephone, uh, a company that brought him into different parts of the province, uh, from the north uh, to the center and into the Fraser Valley. And my whole life revolved around sport, physical activity, and uh, the use of my legs. I love the outdoors and love to fish. And uh, I even had crazy dreams one day of maybe representing my country at the Olympic Games. But uh, sport was a really big deal for me. And uh, yeah, one, one summer, after I graduated from grade 10, I went on a grand adventure fishing with my buddies, and I was 15 years old, and we decided to hitchhike home from that fishing trip from the west coast of British Columbia out of the Bella Coola Valley and uh, back to Williams Lake for the, in time for the stampede. Mm-hmm. We were going to have some fun and got a ride in the back of a pickup truck with a guy who lost control, and uh, that truck rolled over. It trapped me on the inside of the roll, um, broke my back, and damaged my spinal cord, and uh, the doctors shortly thereafter told me I'd never walk again. So that was a big shock. Yeah, uh, understatement probably, yeah. Something like that happens, and I think there are a few things that, in the aftermath, uh, a few things that, if, if not handled the right way, can make it that much harder for you, uh, one of them being the, the question of what if. Uh, what if I didn't get in that pickup truck? What if I would have left earlier or later? Um, tell me about how long you wrestled with that question of what if and how you got past it. Yeah, there were so many what ifs on that fateful trip and day. I mean, everything from you know the early warning when we actually were doing a little bit of uh, you know sort of lake fishing before we went down into the river to fish for salmon and. We ran, went around a corner and there was a, a jeep that had rolled over and there were, I believe, uh, four victims uh, there who had all been banged up and hurt. And we, uh, we helped them get to a local fishing lodge where they could get, uh, you know, a, a medivac out. And it was sort of like a little bit of a premonition, like, uh, right. you know, you better watch. And, and then when we were down in the Bellacula Valley, one night we decided to go and uh, and get some more food. Uh, it was late. It was about 10 o'clock at night and dark, you know, very remote area. We went around a corner 
and there was a fellow uh, and his girlfriend who uh, were broken down on the side of the road. They had had a flat tire, and uh, they ran out of spares, and they were in the middle of nowhere, and so we stopped and helped them out. We helped take them to the gas station where they could get their tires fixed, two of them, and then back and helped them change the tire out, and they were super grateful for that. That's the thing you do, and we said goodbye, and they were on their way, we were on our way, and and then on the way back home, we were driving up out of the valley, and my friend, who was the only one who had the driver's license, fell asleep at uh, you know, 2 in the morning and went off the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And we, we crashed, but just crashed off about a three-foot uh, bank and, and were precariously balanced at the edge of a cliff. And we ended up getting, uh, getting out of that and waited for someone to tow us out. And one of our friends happened to be in the valley that we didn't even know about and he and his dad stopped at their camper and they offered me uh, and my buddy a ride home and uh, we would have to leave our other friend the driver uh, all by himself and we decided to pass on that and then when we were deciding to hitchhike we had a number of vehicles stop and they weren't quite going all the way and then this one vehicle that finally did stop he only stopped because he recognized us and it turned out to be the guy that we helped change the tire, right. uh, you know, a number of days earlier, and he saw us, recognized us, and he wasn't going to stop, but he saw us, and he slammed the brakes on and said, hey, you help me, I'll help you, let's go. And, and then I got into one side of the truck, and my buddy decided that he was whining about his side, and he wanted to switch sides, and so I switched sides just to be a good friend, and that sealed my fate on the inside of the roll of the truck. And so there were a lot of what-ifs in that trip. You know, you can imagine all the things that I kind of went through in my uh, in my head. You know, all these things that kind of led to this outcome could have been a different outcome. So many different slight margins that would have been a completely different destiny. And, uh, and of course, then there was the blaming. Um, I, I blamed the driver mm-hmm. for screwing my life up. And, um, you know, I was really, really upset and mad at him. And I ended up uh, having to recognize that eventually that that anger was just going to be a, a big ball that would anchor me from going forward. It would eat me up. And I had to uh, recognize also that that he wasn't trying to, you know, to crash the car or the truck, and it was an accident. And, uh, and ultimately, uh, I had to also bear some responsibility that, you know, I was responsible for taking a risk and hitchhiking. And I made willing choices to get in the back of that truck in spite of my parents' advice and encouragement never to ever hitchhike, uh, you know. And uh, ultimately, when you start to accept responsibility and you uh, practice something that's super powerful, which is forgiveness uh, of someone else, of yourself, Uh, It's liberating, empowering, and uh, it started to set the tone for my future, liberated by possibilities as opposed to anchored by nothing but anger and resentment. So that's the one thing to get through, is all of that. Uh, Anger, the resentment, uh, being able to forgive somebody. The other thing, and I think, you know, thinking about the age you were at at the time, 15 years old, I remember what it was like being 15. I imagine we had some things in common. There's pride, too, to get through. Uh, a tremendous pride that you have to be able to get past in order to uh, be able to accept your new reality and and make the best of it. What was your relationship with pride like, and, and how did that change? Hmm. Yeah, pride and, and a sense of identity, um, because at the age of 15, you know, you're starting to, you know, 
separate from you know the you know the authority and the really strong influence of your parents and there's that that fierce self-determinationism and the uh, the autonomy and uh, sense of identity based on your physical ability and uh, and your ability to do everything yourself your independence mm-hmm. and so those elements of identity those maxims that you create at that stage of your life um, and they're very valid, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, those became uh, fierce handicaps for me. Uh, I had to realize that, you know, that the reality was that, you know, I needed to accept help now, and uh, and that wasn't a weakness; that was a strength because everyone is interdependent. But I just had to come to that understanding a lot earlier in life than most people. Otherwise, I would have uh, constantly been limited from reclaiming the life that I loved and the person that I was, which was Rick, the outdoorsman, the adventurer, the athlete. And I had to adjust. I had to reframe and and challenge those uh, perceptions and those uh, assumptions. And and they were the source of my pain, not not the use of my legs, not the broken back. Mm. And uh, it took a while, it took a lot of suffering to see that, to understand where the pain was coming from. And then ultimately it was a choice. Did I want to reframe and did I want to liberate myself to this new world and do things I love, still be the same person, but do it slightly differently? You talk about Rick the athlete. There was one person in that transformative period, maybe many people, but Stan Strong, a guy who's had a a tremendous influence on you. How did he come into your life and and what changed for you? Well, one of the other big maxims and stereotypes or stigmas that I carried with me into this new and uncertain world was the attitude about what it was like to have a disability. I didn't really know many people. I'd seen some, and you know, there was uh, you know one young boy in our class who I think he'd had polio, and uh, and and he walked you know with braces. And mm-hmm. I remember walking by him one day and uh, just going down to my next basketball class and thinking, God, that poor kid. And uh, thank God it's not me. And and of course, then it became me. And those, uh, that stigma of what would probably be a normal stigma back in the 70s, that if you had a disability, that, you know, you were shut out, you, you were shunned upon, you didn't have a lot of opportunities and, and uh, someone to be pitied. And, and therefore, if it was you, someone to pity and uh, pity yourself. And, and so that was, a, that was a big burden I carried through. And I could only shift that by being exposed to a different paradigm. And I needed role models like Stan Strong, who wheeled into my life as a peer counselor and uh, you know I would complain about being in the hospital for four months and he said I was there for four years I wasn't expected to survive Mm -hmm. and uh, because people with spinal cord injury in the 30s when he was injured didn't survive until he had finally invented antibiotics and medical treatment and so Stan uh, became that role model that influencer he he was not only a peer counselor, but he was a, the manager of a wheelchair basketball team called the Vancouver Cable Cars, and he inspired me to come and play wheelchair basketball. And he made me realize that nowhere in the definition of an athlete does it say you need to use your legs in order to be one. He he uh, introduced me to a bunch of champion athletes who wheeled circles around me, blew me away, made me think, my gosh, you know, uh, I want to be just like them and uh, filled me with a sense of passion, uh, goals, dreams. And uh, I reclaimed a part of my life that I thought had been taken away from me, and it was because of the influence of Stan 
and probably the most powerful influence for Stan was that his attitude was positive in spite of the fact that he couldn't use his legs. He was struggling, and I'm sure he suffered, but he saw love, beauty, meaning, and purpose in every day, and he smiled intentionally because he owned that sovereignty, and he knew that it was a choice to actively give up your attitude. He couldn't bring back the use of his legs, couldn't change that fateful day, but every day he could change the way he woke up and the way he faced the day, and he decided to focus on the things he could do and what was relevant in life, not the things he couldn't do and what he'd lost. And that attitude uh, and that example profoundly impacted me over the years of getting to know him and understanding his his philosophy and his approach. And, and I guess at the end of the day, Stan Strong also made me realize that, you know, you don't just take from sport or from, you know, people reaching out to you. You give back and you mm-hmm. pay it forward. And uh, he set me on a course to think about ways that I could make a difference. When he came into your life, were you ready to hear what he had to say when he was telling you about these, these wheelchair sports? Or did that take convincing? Yeah, it took a little bit because, again, I, I, I had this complete, you know, the blank canvas of uh, no knowledge, no expectations, except limitations. I, I, I thought it was special sport, you know. Uh, oh, you know that's uh, that's that's for you know, recreation or rehabilitation. That's not really sport. Until I was introduced to the sport, until I understood, you know, the level of competition. Until I met the athletes, you know, these incredible champions and role models like Peter Calistro, Eugene Reimer. Terry Fox um, ended up recruiting Terry after he lost his leg to cancer to come out and play on our team. And, you know, there's uh, so many others who were on that team. And the bottom line is that it was a dream team and uh, and a group of people who came together once in a lifetime. And uh, I was lucky enough to be there. And that made me realize, oh, yeah, okay, this is this is real. This is uh, this is this is pure athleticism and sport. And instead of using legs you, you use the chair and you propel yourself with your arms and and at the end of the day it's uh, it, it's as good as you want to be that's up to you when did wheelchair racing come into the picture for you along those lines well one of the things I did as as an alternate to train and to stay fit because one of my mentors uh, Peter Clistro was not only an all-world basketball all-star uh, but he was also uh, a champion in track, and and although basketball was his main passion, he he wheeled a lot on the track to stay fit. And the fitter he was, the better he was on the basketball court. And I started in that dimension, and over time, I, I kept improving, improving, and, uh, and and then I decided to well, why not why not give it a try? Let's see, let's see what what wheelchair tracks like. And, right. And then I uh, kept extending. I found that I was even better at distance and thought, my gosh, there's going to be a marathon that's coming up in Vancouver, and maybe I should just give it a try. And did fairly well and, uh, you know, came third and uh, got, you know, got thrashed by the champion Jim Martinson by probably 24 minutes. But uh, the guy you know, kind of inspired me. And I, I asked him how he trained and what he did with his chair. And and it started to get in underneath my skin and uh, into my heart. And I thought, oh, man, this is really cool. I could really do this. And so at some point, I got to a place where there was a bit of a threshold and I had to choose, you know, 
you can believe anything's possible but not everything and uh, focus is important and I decided to pick one and decided to keep pushing on the journey on track and then marathoning and ultimately uh, broke through and uh, yeah it was uh, it was was, for me looking back it was a phenomenal choice because if I hadn't made that choice it probably never would have ultimately led me to the biggest goal and challenge of my life. No kidding. Uh, before we get to the Man in Motion tour, uh, I wanted one one story. I want to hear first. Uh, you you obviously get pretty good, and that's an understatement for for wheelchair marathons. You uh, you compete and, and win in nineteen international marathons. Uh, there are Paralympic medals. There's world championships. But I want to hear the story of the Boston Marathon, nineteen eighty two. You're you're not invited to this race. You decide to go anyway. Yeah, you know, obviously when you're on a learning curve and you're starting to feel like you're breaking through, you want to, you know, expose yourself to the best in the world. And some of the best wheelchair athletes in the world were going to be at the Boston Marathon. But at that time, it was uh, reserved, the wheelchair division, for American athletes only. Mm. And so, you know, there was no formal invite for international athletes. And being a Canadian, I called the the organizer of the wheelchair division, and he said, you know, Rick, we'd love you to come. Uh, we think it's important to get more and more people exposed, and we're trying to change these rules, but in the meantime, why don't you come and, you know, you'll be an unofficial participant, and it'll be good for the sport. We'll have more competitors. You'll get to measure yourself up, and you just won't be an official part of the race. And I said, sure, that's great. And so I showed up, and and uh, as luck would have it, I I, uh, I I broke free from the pack and ended up winning the race. And as I came across the finish line, there was this this mob of media that started to descend on me, and uh, they wanted to you know me to you know they, they they thought I was an American, yeah. obviously an official participant. But I kept wheeling, and I said to the to the guys trying to catch me, I said uh, I'm an unofficial participant. The winner of the race is coming in a couple of minutes. He'll be here shortly. Right. Please, please interview him. And I just kept wheeling and <laughs> didn't want to stop. I felt a bit <laughs> awkward, but it wasn't my intention to steal the show or to um, make a scene. I, I, I really was kind of stunned that I actually I won. But at the end of the day, I tried to deal with it as best I could by not uh, taking his thunder and and just uh, moving uh, into the shadows and uh, quickly catching a, a taxi and going home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, how did the idea for the Man in Motion tour come about? Well, it, it, anything that we do in life usually to make a difference comes from our experiences, uh, the things we see, um, you know, the injustices, the challenges, the opportunities. And for me, representing Canada as a Paralympic athlete took me around the world. I had wrestled clearly with my internal attitude about my disability. I'd seen it and experienced it from others. I'd seen the physical barriers that were everywhere. Um, I talked to my colleagues and they all said the same thing, that it was a, it was a tough thing just to deal with not only living with your disability, but but going off and being an athlete and then getting double handicapped by people's attitudes and the physical environment. And so I, uh, I thought, well, you know, um, maybe what I should do is uh, try to pay it forward by doing something 
extraordinary that would shock people to rethink moving from disability to ability, um, show what was possible if you could remove barriers in people's lives, and to do something that was seemingly impossible, which would be to push a wheelchair around the world in a wheel, you know, in a chair. And so that was uh, that was uh, my dream. It was to is to create awareness of the potential of people with disabilities, wheel around the world, and um, just maybe raise money and um, help spinal cord research, accessibility, leave a legacy, and maybe start a movement. But uh, that dream was forged through those experiences. But I need key, I needed key inspiration mm-hmm. from Stan Strong, from Terry Fox and his Marathon of Hope, you know, his Marathon of Hope had a secondary consequence that I saw, which is that it kind of re- reframed the conversation from disability to ability. And even that that wasn't even in his mindset. It was purely focused on finding a cure for cancer. I saw that, and it really helped me realize the purpose of uh, this dream that I had been forming and that it could be worthwhile and truly make a difference. I needed, you know, other role models to inspire me, like, you know, Bill McIntosh, the president of Nike Canada, who informed me that World Expo was going to be in Vancouver and that it was looking for, you know, international promotional vehicles to promote Vancouver and and, uh, the Expo. And I thought, my gosh, maybe they could be a sponsor. And uh, that got me even further down the road to believe it was possible. And, And then ultimately it was people like, Tim Frick, my coach, uh, Don Alder, my buddy who was in the back of the pickup truck with me, um, my cousin Lee Gibson, uh, my uh, soon-to-be wife Amanda, who was my physiotherapist, and so many more people who believed in me and wanted to commit themselves to help turn that dream into reality because without them, it would have been just a fantasy, uh, would have been a dream and an adventure but with no purpose, or it would have been a passionate commitment but with no real ability to turn it into a reality. And so I I felt super blessed to be surrounded by some amazing difference makers who influenced me in a big way. You're thinking of a, a goal like pushing yourself around the world, such a, a monumental task. There's a quote of yours from your book, the original book, uh, Man in Motion, and I might be paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of if we waited for everything to be perfect, we would never even start, uh, which I think speaks to so much. Uh, can you can you talk about that and, and how you got around that, I guess? People often ask me what was the most significant moment of the entire tour and even the greatest challenge. And I, and, I, and I say, well, clearly it was being able to be able to take the first stroke on the Man of Motion tour to start. Mm-hmm. There were so many levels of inertia. You know, there were so many reasons we were poorly prepared uh, we had people basically quit the tour planning team because they didn't feel that we would be well organized enough to minimize the risks and have a reasonable chance of it being successful. There were all kinds of um, problems that we had that seemed insurmountable. Our fundraising capacity had topped out. We didn't think we could maybe raise enough money. They were getting me to think about delaying the journey for six months, and even then they weren't sure. And and I thought very deeply about these issues and these concerns, and I, I just, uh, I, I said to my team, uh, my core team, that that I, uh, I understood there were some things maybe to delay for a couple of weeks, you know. But at the end of the day, if we didn't leave now, 
the window of opportunity was closing and, you know, whether it would be self-doubt, um, skepticism, you know, the inundation of all the uh, uh, unfinished details that would never be perfect, uh, or the ability to demonstrate what this was really all about and build credibility over a period of time and give up the unrealistic expectations that this would be a phenomenally well-oiled machine from the moment you left and that you would actually build that perfection, those 10,000 hours to excellence along the way. And hopefully with that, the team of supporters that would ultimately help you complete the journey and turn the dream into a reality and make a difference. And so we left in an uncertain period. Uh, we were unorganized. We, we, we basically ran the box uh, that was on the top of the motorhome filled with wheelchair equipment right into the top of this tunnel that I, uh, I'd wheeled through. And the guys were so unorganized, they were uh, not thinking about actually when they hit the overheight warning bar to turn around and find a different exit. They, they sent someone to the top of the motorhome to lift the bar up so the motorhome could overcome that problem and uh, forgot that it was warning them about the actual tunnel. And they crashed full speed right into the tunnel and the box shattered and the wheelchair equipment spilled all over the road and these waving, cheering 200 well-wishers yeah. looked in stunned disbelief and got He's going around the world in a wheelchair. He can't even get out of the parking lot. Good luck. He'll be back soon. <laughs> you talk about any illusions of a well-oiled machine just kind of disintegrating yeah. right there. Well, yeah. And I guess that's the reality, isn't it? You know, uh, nothing's perfect. We make mistakes. We we learn. We grow. We keep uh, continually trying to improve. And hopefully that we don't make a, a catastrophic mistake that uh, influences things to a point where you can't continue. And and uh, there is a difference between taking risks and being reckless. And I think we tried to walk that line, and, and uh, ultimately it, uh, it served us well. You talk about facing doubts early on in the tour. There was a point in time you're in Arizona, and uh, somebody drives past you, and the window comes down, and a woman basically says to you at the window, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with that um, and deal with the doubts like that? Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, the self-doubts are always there that you're battling, and that's, uh, that's your biggest uh, challenge. Uh, and, then, and then, yeah, you're trying to make a difference, and you're putting yourself out there, and, and someone uh, does something like that uh, or drives by and, you know, flips you the finger or, you know, does some other things, you know. Uh, it, it, it's really, it's disheartening, uh, you know. It's devastating, actually. And the only way to deal with it is to process it and uh, let it flow through and uh, and ultimately reframe. And reframing comes from, you know, the encouragement from your team, you know, always you know, falling back to the love and support of your team. And also it comes from reminding yourself that for every one of those, there's a hundred or a thousand on the other side. And so therefore it's your choice. You know, are you focusing on that? Uh, is that what you're going to let drive your perspective of what's happening or are you going to reframe and balance and uh, and orient yourself to the good because in those shitty days those shitty moments there's always some there's always something good and uh, you know and sometimes we get so pulled by the gravity of it we we shut down our peripheral view to be able to see and and then we set ourselves up for a cascade so there's that sort of discipline in that you know, attitude of like uh, gratitude 
to always look for something good that's happened in that day. And that constantly keeps you moving forward and allows you to endure those things that are either imposed on you from others or their internal barriers or external challenges that you didn't see, but you're living it and it's frustrating and it's tough and all of a sudden you're ill and then you're injured and then you know, you're hearing that you're out of money and you don't know if you can go another two weeks without shutting the tour down. And all those things are real, but you know, the other things are, well, why are we here? You know, uh, well, we made it another day, another 113 kilometers. We saw seven different events today and there were like 10 people with disabilities who were so proud and so happy that our tour was reframing their environment and giving them hope. We'd raised money. Our person had stopped and said, you know, I lost my job. I was feeling sorry for myself, but I've just seen what you're doing, and it's changed my whole view. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that were there every single day, and it just wasn't sometimes exactly as I'd imagined it would be in the dream. And so the tension between the dream and reality is always uh, a challenge for us to manage and you know, it maybe isn't exactly that way at the moment, but it's still on plane and it's still there for us to see and to uh, and to anchor onto. When you set out on a on a goal like this, a journey like this to go across the world, you might start with an idea of what you think you're doing, you know, whether that's uh, raising money or raising awareness. But I think, if at least if you ask me, somewhere along the line, you realize what's most special is the the intimate moments, the kind of the personal connections along the way those things that you do reflect on each day. This might be the most difficult question of all, but if you, what's the first one that comes to mind when you think about the, the hundreds that you experienced along that ride? You know, I, I think of one main moment in uh, a small town, I believe it was in Poland. Uh, you know, Europe hadn't been going so well for us and feeling sorry for myself, and it was starting to get chilly. It was uh, towards the end of September, and I came around a corner into the small village and uh, oh my gosh there was just like hundreds of people uh, cheering me on and uh, and encouraging me to come come through the community and as I get, came into this gauntlet of uh, human uh, well-wishing and, uh, and 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 enthusiasm and support off to my side was uh, a movement and I looked down and it was actually uh, a young man uh, who had a spinal cord injury who was sitting on a piece of plywood with a pillow on it and he was uh, put that plywood had four little skateboard wheels and he was pushing himself along the ground uh, to try to come up beside me and through an interpreter he was like streaming tears of joy and saying thank you thank you thank you and uh, I, I said uh, what are you thinking he said your journey has given me hope, and for the first time, my family and my community have seen me with ability. Mm. Thank you. Keep going. And, uh, you know, you, you see something like that, and, and you know, you go, man, that's, uh, that's, that's why we're doing this, you know, is to actually affect someone's life, to reframe the conversation. And, yeah, that's an experience that I'll never forget, and uh, it was a driving force during uh, many more months in Europe where uh, there were lots and lots and lots of challenges, but uh, those moments really gave me fuel. You make it halfway around the world to Israel, and you're in Jerusalem, and go figure, you see a, a monument to your friend from back home in B.C., Terry Fox, a guy you've already talked about a little bit. Um, if you could tell me a bit more about the, the friendship that you had, 
the way that he inspired you? Well, you know, obviously the cable cars environment uh, and our team inspired Terry and Stan Strong inspired Terry with his culture of paying it forward. And Terry was, uh, you know, recognizing that there are people with many more disabling conditions on that team, but they didn't, you know, didn't yield to that and they showed ability. And uh, he was inspired to be more than, uh, than what he thought he was. And then he was inspired to pay it forward. And he conceived of uh, this idea after watching a marathon runner uh, run, uh, I think it was the Boston or New York Marathon. It was an amputee. And he thought, I can start running. And, and then after a while, I can run a long distance. And then after a while, I can run across Canada to raise money for cancer research. And and so Terry and I, we, we trained together, we roomed together, we were great friends, and, and ultimately, you know, he inspired me in a huge way uh, because he had the courage to reach for his dream, and, and if he hadn't, who knows what might not have happened uh, with the Terry Fox Foundation and runs that continue to this day all around the world and the lives that have been impacted. And, and I had my dream too, and I was struggling with that uh, question as to whether I wanted to really go for it, really take that first step and see where it would take me. And he had a big impact on me. And when I left, Terry had already passed away and obviously couldn't finish his journey. And uh, the family and the community and the country and people around the world have kept it going for all these years since. But for me, when I left on the Man of Motion tour, it was important to invite Terry's mom and dad, Betty and Rolly. They were good friends, uh, and they represented my bond to Terry. And they brought with them on this uh, kickoff ceremony uh, as I left on my first day a little miniature version of Terry's statue at Thunder Bay where he's forced to abandon his journey because of the recurrence of cancer. And this little miniature statue went with me all around the world. And uh, every time I got frustrated, maybe felt like quitting, I'd be in the motorhome taking a break, and it would be up on a little shelf, and and I'd see it, and I would go, yeah, okay, Um, yeah, yeah, he he would have been challenging me to keep going. He wouldn't have quit. You know, he would have uh, given it everything. And so it had a huge inspiration. And so seeing the monument in Jerusalem was uh, powerful. Uh, obviously, being at Thunder Bay on my last leg of the Man of Motion tour and seeing it again there, and uh, it was overwhelming. Uh, such a, a tremendous amount of emotion, friendship, loss, grief, uh, inspiration, hope uh, in helping you know take him home with me, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of things going on at that point. And uh, at the end of the day, just tremendous gratitude of knowing him as a friend. You make it back to Vancouver. And, I mean, that is such a high point in a person's life. Uh, how do you struggle to, uh, or how do you manage not to struggle with the lows that might come from uh, such a high after that to be able to find, and continue to find purpose? Yeah, we, we, uh, we finished the tour and, gosh, raised $26 million, raised awareness and uh, completed the 40,000-kilometer journey over 34 countries, you know, two years, two months, two days on the road, and and I uh, I, I broke through that banner, and and the sign behind me said, 
welcome home, Rick. Uh, the end is just the beginning. Right. And I kind of like laughed that off. I was going, yeah, right. I'm finished, man. I'm done. I'm going to get back into my athletic career, regain my world title, my Paralympic championship in marathoning, and uh, maybe finish off my education uh, component for my phys ed degree and start teaching and coaching. That was my path. And I'd set that goal before the tour. I was getting back to it. And after a little bit of rest and recovery, winding down things on the tour, I got on my set of stationary rollers, set out to my first formal workout in my triumphant uh, return and comeback. And uh, I got partway through my workout and I just quit. I I could not believe it. Like, it was like, what what happened? Kind of struggled, shook it off and come back to the next workout and kind of made it through but it was really really tough I had to really just grind and then just every day that I was back out trying to come back I was like just not myself I really was in trouble and I was now depressed one minute I was on top of the world I could achieve anything I had all this willpower this determination and now I can't even finish a workout you know what's going on this is like weird and I guess what I needed, and I didn't realize it at the time, is to reframe because I'd been trying to live an old goal I set two years earlier, and I hadn't had enough space to decompress and to really absorb the enormity of what happened to me on the tour. And uh, after I did start to do some soul-searching, I realized that what had happened to me is that I'd been profoundly changed by the experience. I'd seen uh, the incredible goodwill Um, and collaboration from people around the world, the depth of humanity, um, the goodness. I'd seen the barriers and the the real scope and size of the mountain to climb. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was, uh, (laughs) the tour was just a baby step forward. And, uh, you know, we had so far to go. and, and And I really felt in some way compelled to want to find my way to be part of that journey and to continue to move forward. And, and yet, had no experience, no practical experience, no job, uh, no career, no pathway to be able to figure out how in the heck I could do that. Um, set up uh, the, you know, the 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 Rick Hansen Foundation uh, as a volunteer, get the board in place, uh, got the programs going, and at a pivotal moment, uh, a year after the end of the tour, uh, my former president of uh, the University of British Columbia, David Strangway, called me up and said, Rick, we'd like you to come and work with the university and continue uh, your work as a champion uh, for accessibility and inclusion and spinal cord research. And, you know, it's your alma mater. We'd love to have you work here uh, as a base for your local, national, and global dream. And uh, they set up uh, an endowment, uh, the prime minister and the premier, and And uh, it changed my life because a pathway opened that allowed me to recognize that I had accomplished and acquired skills to be a leader. And I could embrace that term. And I was also able to turn dreams into reality by being clear on the vision and the outcome, by identifying people who had skill and talent to come together, bringing resources and uh, capacity, and then measuring progress to mobilize a team to get to a goal. And I could replicate that many times uh, because it was something that I'd been doing on Grand Adventures all my life. And uh, it became clear 
and I was lucky because uh, because at the end of the day, um, just I could have been uh, deviated into something completely different. I could have because I was I'd invested my life savings. I I'd just been married. I was uh, you know had pretty much no real opportunity, and so I could have gone off. Um, you know, cashing in on my reputation or uh, a private business or other things that might have been uh, economically uh, rewarding, but not sort of spiritually connected to where my passion and the influence that the tour had taken me to and the work that still had to be done. And so here I am, you know, 31 years later uh, after the end of the Man in Motion tour, and uh, I'm just so grateful for the experience. I'm so grateful for the people who have influenced my life and helped me to stay on this course to keep moving forward towards the ultra marathon of social change. Just to talk about the UBC experience for a moment, this was a place that prior to your tour, uh, you were going there for a reception and you had to be brought up to a floor on a, on a dumb waiter. Uh, it speaks to, I think, the, the world we had at the time, the environment we had at the time. Um, what were the challenges that you came back to and you had to to, uh, I guess, fight for or change, not just at UBC, but elsewhere. Well, that, that's a great experience because you know, the president, uh, David Strangway, was the host of that reception before I left, and his eyes were open wide uh, as a result of his commitment to help me and to support me on my journey. He realized that someone could think globally, but we had to act locally, and his institution was an old institution that didn't see people with disabilities as being able to be fully included. And he heard my story of all the barriers that I faced. He saw it dramatically even in that reception. (laughs) And uh, he realized he needed some support. And so he thought that he would bring me to to the university to help, uh, you know, create accessibility, to create a, a, a disability resource center and help push accessibility and and build a world-class spinal cord research center. And and so uh, we were able to do that together with UBC, bring over $130 million worth of support, build uh, champions and expertise, and and uh, and help them connect to the world and be uh, a leader and be a partner in this ongoing journey. And, uh, and of course, the reality is uh, there was a long way to go when I finished the Man in Motion tour. I mean, uh, you know, mostly people thought of spinal cord research as a a bit of a fantasy to find a cure. Uh, A scientist that would say it was possible was shunned upon, you know, uh, because they were, um, you know, being in in most people's minds disreputable because, you know, it hadn't been proven. How could you say that? But obviously uh, there was hope and uh, there needed to be progress. And and of course, accessibility, well, it was still considered largely, uh, you know, like a charitable endeavor to support people with disabilities. Human rights still hadn't been embedded. And uh, even though our constitution had come home in 1982, there was no, 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 not one real shred of legislation in our country to embed accessibility and inclusion. There was only the human rights, uh, you know, uh, Opportunity to uh, to file, you know, and, and and to claim a violation, mm-hmm. but in reality, um, so far to go, and 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 everywhere you would go, whether it be in schools or community centers or hotels or restaurants uh, or in airports, you know, there were barriers everywhere, and and so yeah, what, what needed to happen is people needed to, you know, be empowered to be champions and to step up and say. 
this isn't right. There is a solution. It's better for everybody. And and researchers need to be supported so they could actually prove that it was possible and no longer, you know, be chastised for their views and their hope. And and I wanted to be part of holding those two dreams and uh, being a leader and leaving legacies to help accelerate progress and, and to think of it as global solutions, not just local solutions. And so the work we've done with our foundation is we've created a global research institute that measures uh, the same things, uh, standardizes the language, and then creates a global research platform for people to collaborate from anywhere in the world. And uh, surgeons and patients and researchers can all uh, be part of this uh, amazing institute. And and it's accelerating progress, and it's shrunk the world, and it's created a, a, a global legacy that will go on uh, until eventually we find a cure for spinal injury. And it's not one man in motion, it's many. And, of course, our foundation is also driving forward to create a global standard for accessibility in this world. And we're going to be able to professionalize and train architects, engineers, city planners, developers, you know, uh, people with disabilities and advocates, and they'll all have an accredited designation and, and they'll speak the same language, measure the same things. And and what we'll find is that the places that we live, work, learn, and play will actually be measured and rated for levels of accessibility. And we'll be able to have a level of comfort when we go somewhere that this is uh, reasonably accessible or this is really innovative and cool. And we'll keep driving that forward so that the 1.3 billion people on the planet today living with a disability will not feel they need to be cured in order to be whole as human beings. They're included, they're equal, they're able to contribute and make our society better. And that would be the greatest gift of all. And uh, at the end of the day, I, uh, I'm, I'm really proud of our team and proud of the people who are in the community working towards the same goal in different ways. And uh, I know we'll get there. Maybe we'll finish with this yet. Uh, as as this work continues 31 years after this tour, what continues to inspire and excite you? Well, first, uh, every uh, every day uh, I get up, I'm uh, I'm grateful to continue to have a little extra time and space on the, on this earth because I know that time is the most precious commodity we have. I learn that more and more as I get older and. I, uh, I'm grateful for it. I hope I can squeeze a little more out. And I feel I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. I wouldn't trade my life for the use of my legs. I have a goal and a dream. And, uh, and I'm also super grateful to, to be surrounded by family. Um, my wife, Amanda, who's been the greatest champion of my entire journey and uh, in so many ways. She's not only my life partner, but she's the mother of our three daughters. And we're uh, the proud grandparents of our two little grandsons, Reed and Everett, and uh, they are the joy of our lives. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a gift and it's a blessing. And so what keeps me going is, uh, is, is that sense of gratitude for a, a full life, a sense of love and meaning and purpose. And, and, of course, to see that manifested by adventures and journeys and learning and growth and knowing that the that the dream is unfolding and it's much bigger than one person, anything I could have started or that I'm still a part of, and 
and I, I kind of think, wow, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, but also, I, I really, really want to keep learning, and I, I'm expressing my leadership beyond those two original goals and dreams. Uh, I, I, I care about other things, and I'm interested in, in, in seeing how I can apply my leadership skills to keep making a difference, because I have a personal uh, vision of a, a world that is healthy and inclusive. And, and ultimately, that's a, that's a vision that's, uh, that's manifesting itself in everything that I do. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to know more about Rick and the Foundation, you can head to rickhansen.com. He's also got two books, Man in Motion and Rick Hansen's Man in Motion World Tour, 30 Years Later. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. Transcribing for this week's episode is done by Emma Terrell. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.